Welcome to Neuroethics Today, a science and society podcast about emerging ethical and societal implications of neuroscience research and neurotechnology. In this show, we'll interview experts in the fields of neuroscience, neuroethics, and neurotechnologies. We will highlight pressing questions, discuss thought-provoking ideas, and raise awareness on the importance of neuroethics in our daily lives. Keep listening to Get Curious and Critical. Hello, everyone. My name is Jackson Bonstra. I am a PhD student at the Department of Neurosurgery in Mastodic University. And I am in the group of fundamental neuromodulation. My coworkers work in a various field of neuromodulation, including deep brain stimulation, uh, rodent experiments, nanoparticles, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And throughout my PhD, while writing chapters for my upcoming thesis that I will need to defend, uh, I, had a, I had a joke where I was going to make a chapter about Elon Musk's Neuralink. Now, Neuralink is a proposed technology that his company called Neuralink is creating, where they were going to, or they plan to and hope to, insert wires into people's heads in a brain-computer interface that will inevitably lead to some crazy sci-fi outcomes, such as being able to hear your Spotify playlist in your head, and um, even going so far as to say it would, it would cure some type of mental disorders like depression and uh, schizophrenia. But during my research, and while studying fundamental neuromodulation, I always had this thought that that technology will never work. And whenever I brought that up to someone, they always thought I was just being critical um, and just uh, being negative, thinking that uh, I, do, I wouldn't want it to work. But while working in my laboratory under neurosurgeons, who I have seen in the operating theaters, insert wires into people's brains, into Parkinsonians patients' brains to have them stop tremors in their arms. I have seen in real time patients' hands stop shaking while an electrophysiologist turns the dial up to influence, if it's a, influence this, electro, this stimulation. Now this works well for patients with tremors who have too much movement, uh, but it works less well for patients with rigidity or who have too little movement. Um, and the difference between those two types of Parkinson's patients, those with tremors and those without tremors, that's actually the main point of my thesis. I study the motor circuitry in the brain, trying to see what the exact anatomical differences are in those regions, and if we can get a better understanding of the alterations that are going on, maybe we can get a better performance out of the deep brain stimulation that we actually do. Um, so when I tell people that Neuralink will never work, um, they, they think that I'm just writing for some uh, posh factual inaccuracies, and it's reducto ad absurdum, right? But I'll try to explain in detail right now why I believe that the technology and the aims of Neuralink are fundamentally and scientifically flawed. 
As it states on their website, the Neuralink company is developing an ultra-high bandwidth brain-machine interface to connect humans and computers. Now, this obviously sounds interesting. Cyborgs are really cool. Um, but if I can just take a brief history back to the 30s and 40s when we first started to alter um, brain activity with surgery. Um, many of you may know about lobotomies. Lobotomy was a surgical treatment where you'd sever connections in the brain for the point of treating mental disorders. Uh, this went on mostly in Western countries for about two decades, despite a general recognition of frequent and serious side effects. It was very controversial, and there was an unequal balance between the benefits and the risks. Even the neurosurgeons and neurologists won the Nobel Prize for this procedure. The awarding of that prize is still subject to intense controversy. Uh, moving on from lobotomies, we then started to get a little more focused within our surgical uh, uh, modulations, where we had stereotactic lesion, lesional surgery, where we'd lesion a certain part of the brain. And then that was roughly in the 50s, and that lasted up to the 90s. And then we started to do what my bosses do, deep brain stimulation within the 90s. Now, deep brain stimulation is when you put an electrode in the brain and stimulate it with some current. And it has very similar effects to that of lesional surgeries, but not exactly. If we, and then since the 90s and onward, since the early 2000s, we've developed even more intense, more, more specific um, neuromodulatory things such as dread, optogenetics that uses light, uh, magnetothermal deep brain stimulation that does it with nanoparticles that would be able to degrade within the brain might, might seem safer, and some of my colleagues are working on that now. All of these approaches use biometrics to alter neuronal activity and have evolved with microcircuitry focus to target specific sets of neuronal populations. But for all of these, if you look to the clinical literature, they will say, even with relevant knowledge and minimal invasiveness and safety and disorder and symptom specificity, clinical success is not guaranteed. So if I can state my hypothesis shortly, there does not exist a non-invasive imaging technology that can see and read the brain activity anywhere near the scale of a single neuron which I say is needed to understand higher order cognition at a level that you'd be able to play around with it. So our current methods of functional brain imaging, like fMRIs and PET scans and EEGs, those photos that you see in those scientific papers of areas lighting up, uh, those are averages of averages and they're very low resolution. And every brain is different. All functional activity varies. There's no one-size-fit-all algorithm. Um, and Neuralink would have to be at a level of patient-specific that doesn't exist yet, and theoretically may never come to fruition. Within the company, there are millions of dollars being spent on adaptive or closed-loop brain stimulation and electrical current steering 
um, that which happens when you shoot electricity through the brain. But we only have semi-okay ideas towards what's actually going on. And we don't have an idea of what's going on on a global scale within the brain when this type of modulation is happening. In essence, the brain is kind of this black box. We can see in the surgical theater when they put the electrode in and they turn the dial, we can see in real time when a, pa when a Parkinson's patient's hand stops tremoring. It literally goes from shaking, turn the dial, stops shaking. And that is a in real time understanding that what our aim of that surgery is working. But if you start targeting something like depression, you'd have to, that's not in real time. You can't tell, ask the patient, hey, are you no longer depressed? You can probably understand that that's a multi-month, multi-year personal experience that one would uh, have to relay over a course of a time. Now, I might have said that we don't exactly know what's happening when we put the wire in, but the outcome is very similar to lesion surgery, which is when you destroy a part of the brain. So maybe this electricity is making neurons fire less, which is a mechanism of action. It's a depolarization. It's a lesser, lessening of firing. But if you look up mechanism of action for deep brain stimulation in any of the neuromodulatory things I've uh, mentioned prior, you'll see some of the most poetic scientific jargon trying to explain what's physically and locally and electronically happening right near the electrode or around the lesion. And you will see within our science, scientific writing that we are incapable, even theoretically, of measuring and decoding such activity with certainty. Uh, similar to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, where the velocity of an object cannot both be measured at the same time. The velocity of an object cannot be measured at the same time of the speed. In theory, so too can the interconnected functional activity of all neurons in one brain be measured at the same time as you stimulate it. You would need a reading feedback to be at a scale as to not affect all billions of, of synapses within the brain. And even if you could, you would need to put that info in real time into some sort of supercomputer to read and record and analyze it in real time, and then compute the desired feedback and outcome and send it back through, not the recording device, but the stimulating device, again, in real time, to, or maybe just with a nanosecond delay, to affect the population or the network or the circuitry that would be needed to have your desired cognitive outcome. I would argue that Neuralink's objectives are not needed in society. My bosses work on Parkinsonian patients who have brain diseases that affect their day-to-day -day activities, their quality of life. But Neuralink wishes to put such devices in healthy individuals' brains. The company on their website says their aim is to communicate telepathically. You can hear your Spotify playlist in your mind but humans have ears, and ears have developed over millions of years. Having ears to hear music speaks to the point that having an, like a smartphone in your pocket 
an internet-sized screen 24-7 in the palm of your hand, that's one of the greatest brain-computer interfaces you have. The iPhone, it vibrates, it lights up, it sounds cool, it hijacks all of the senses. It doesn't smell or taste like anything, but that's because it's not food. I get that in some sci-fi fantasy, people want to integrate smartphones into the body, but that's so ridiculously complex and I'd argue pointless. In the same way how it's unclear whether or not hypothesis-driven molecular or nanoparticle approaches to neuromodulation that require viral delivery tools or genetic manipulations, those might never reach the clinical arena. So too is it unknowable if the current approaches to recording and influencing the brain will ever reach a level of sophistication that would be able to interact in a net positive way with higher order cognitive functions such as complex thought or hearing music. About two years ago at a 2020 event, Elon Musk said, I think long-term you can store someone's full, you can restore someone's full body motion. Now that's, a, that's an amazing uh, desire to want to do that to p patients who need it. But even the linguist Norm Chomsky said that brain-computer interfaces for movement disorders, those are within the domain of feasibility. Those are what my bosses do. Um, largely because current neuromodulatory systems are working and successful at treating Parkinson's patients' tremors, uh, but not curing the tremors. They, they, they still have to come back into the operating room and be tuned. Even attempts to reconnect simplistic motor neurons, like within the spines of individuals who, uh, who are paralyzed, to help them maybe reanimate their legs to help them walk. That could be possible. This is basic motor neuronal function. Or the ability to train a, a locked-in patient who has one of those brain-computer interfaces in their, in their head to control a robotic arm you may have seen that woman feed herself a bar of chocolate. That might be possible, but these are simple motor tasks. <laughs> but when, if ever, brain-computer interfaces are attempted to be used in an area like higher-order cognitive function, such as thought or language, Chomsky says that this technology essentially, the Neuralink technology essentially tells us nothing about higher-order thought or language, and it's nowhere near advanced enough to do so. Andrew Schwartz, a professor of neurobiology at University of Pittsburgh, is a pioneer in the field of brain-computer interfaces. And he says that the Neuralink demonstrations so far of, of that monkey playing ping-pong with his brain-computer interfaces, that kind of control was demonstrated 20 years ago, almost in the 80s. And performance is very, very rudimentary. He does regress and say that recording equipment and the transmission of data seems to be very nice, and that may be some advance going on in those areas. But the monkey is only playing this ping pong in 2D space. Once you have that monkey control something in 3D space, then that would actually be more revolutionary, and that would be of interest. Same to the Neuralink demonstration, where the pig's nose, the neurons in the pig's snout were being read and audio spikes were heard whenever it was smelling something. 
That's very old technology. Those demonstrations are very much theater. I'm not arguing that advances in brain-computer interface devices are not being made. I know that they are. You can throw research money at current technology and you'll probably output some type of new knowledge. But that's not the issue. Elon's sales pitch that rakes in millions of dollars from investment funding is, this is going to sound pretty weird, quote, but achieving symbiosis with artificial intelligence. I think this is going to be something really important at a civilization scale level. I've said a lot about AI over the years, but I think even the benign AI scenario will be left behind, unquote. Symbiosis, that's what Elon's talking about. I'm sorry, but I, I, I cannot believe that where we stand right now. Let's just look at vision, just really quick. There are about 20 to 40 different topographical map representations in the visual cortex that start to break down the deeper you go within the neuronal area. Not to mention the difference between bottom-up influence on perception, just like regularly seeing your coffee cup, versus top-down perception, which is imagining your coffee cup, and how those are different in the networks and others, or how those differentially feed into and out of emotions and memories and other brain areas. Super long scientific story short, we do not know enough about the brain in any network capacity to be fiddling around with wires thinking we can simply switch on and off any cognitive aspect of our choosing, let alone basic motoric aspects like my lab is currently trying to improve. That's what I want everyone to know. We do not know enough about the brain to achieve Neuralink's goals. The sales pitches that get made are unscientific in nature. There does not exist a technology to measure the brain at a scale, at a resolution, be it spatial or temporal, or at an invasiveness that can capture all of the brain's functions. fMRI, EEG, ECOG, local field potentials, all these single units, they are terribly limited. If you really want to interact with cognition long-term, you'd also need something to read secondary messenger molecules that are subneuronal. All brains are different. It wouldn't matter if you even record all of my neurons and feed it into some type of supercomputer. The next guy in line will need a completely different set of parameters than me. So this AI decoder that he speaks of won't scale. Like how the data from the lady who fed herself a chocolate bar with a robotic arm won't translate to the next patient that will need similar devices. Thoughts and cognition are complex and may remain too complex to understand fully. Thoughts are fundamentally irreversible. They're plastic. They're epigenetically influenced. While there are many secondary aspects of neuronal networks that are being ignored within Neuralink's vision. Neuralink's hurdles are not just technological hurdles. They are biological and philosophical ones as well. And to understand cognition in that way, they are in no position as an engineering company to be advancing that field. They might be able to help the already progressing field of microelectrode array bandwidth along, but cannot and should not be responsible for brain-computer implementation procedures. Those are medical routines done by highly sophisticated doctors that have decades of practice 
and have basic goals of stopping someone's hands from shaking by zapping their thalamic nucleus semi-haphazardly. Computers cannot do a neurosurgeon's job. Biocompatibility, or the body and brain, the body and brain hates foreign objects in its stuff. And on top of that, electrodes that we insert into the brains, they're very stiff. Brains will often reject and scar around these devices. Now you want a million electrodes, you're going to get a million micro problems to solve that compound on each other. Maybe flexible electrodes could minimize, but they won't negate these issues. We have all of the neurons of that C. elegant of those little worms mapped and modeled in computers, but we're still failing to use true models to network all of the nodes of the network of that C. elegant. How would this scale to humans? All of my points right now are just starting points in pointing out various and multidimensional ways of how the stakes and the desires of Neuralink are unfathomably high. The technology to do what Elon wants to do does not exist. The development of current technolo technology of brain-computer interfaces and modulation are currently being developed and utilized in much more appropriate settings, such as hospitals, with the aims that are much more realistic than telepathy. Thinking it would be possible in the near future is jumping the gun. For it is not evident with our current understanding of the brain, let alone our technology that interacts with it, that we will ever get to a sophisticated enough understanding of cognition to manipulate it in the way that Elon wants to. Neuralink is, as the Technology Review nicely puts it, neuroscientific theater. It is misguided, just as the Human Brain Project was. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of science, of modeling, and scale that will prevent the end goals from ever coming to fruition. Elon said it, quote, it could solve paralysis, blindness, hearing, unquote. Yet his company hasn't committed to any of those massively complex singular research focuses and have thus cast such a wide net, they've almost lost all focus. There is such a gigantic galactic leap between motor-related neuronal activity that my group works on and thoughts and cognitive functions that it's ridiculous to think that the technology that interacts with one will be able to interact with the other. It's kind of like saying snorkeling can be used to deep-sea dive the Mariana Trench. Elon said himself on the Joe Rogan podcast, that deep brain stimulation is, quote, hitting the top of the TV to make the signal better, and somehow it works, unquote. And then goes on in the same interview to say that the first Neuralink will be here in five to 10 years. It's surprising how much cognitive dissonance that man needs to continue to get scientifically illiterate investors to give him money. We do not know what consciousness is, it might be an emergent phenomenon irreducible to component parts that follow some system-level behavioral laws we can't understand. We don't know how memories are encoded neurologically. We don't understand most neurological mechanisms of action. We don't know how inner monologues represent concepts or how we visualize geometric pictures or hold symbolic 
equations in visual, spatial, neuronal space. These philosophical and cognitive neuroscientific aspects will not be solved by scaling microarray bandwidth or by developing a sewing machine that implements a chip into your skull. It took years to allow deep brain stimulation for motor issues to be FDA approved, to be researched in animals before it could reach human levels. And it's still not perfect. It will take even more years to allow it for mood disorders, such as depression. And the research is still out on that and in its very, very young infancy. And I postulate that it will never be allowed for a perfectly healthy person to opt for brain surgery to get a chip in their head in hopes that it would make them think faster. If test trials ever do happen with Neuralink, some of them will go terribly, terribly wrong. I suggest not going down the rabbit hole of deep brain stimulation for mood disorders like anxiety and depression. As you will find, next to a little success, Sometimes the downsides are actually making people's depression worse. Neuralink is a team of card-carrying neuroscientists and engineers that are funded by hype, not good science. If you want neuromodulatory research to go forward, fund the already existing departments that have been on the cutting edge technology of this for the last few decades. Don't steal scientists like America did after the war and hoard innovation and gain a monopoly in this field. So far, I've been talking about the technological gap that may never be crossed. But there are long-term ethical issues of getting one's brain hacked by this device. We all know of those horror stories of people who have had their insulin pumps hacked. It's been topic of news, even topic of TV shows. The attackers can remotely control these devices and, and get a, insert a lethal dose into these individuals. And even when companies and the FDA tried to regulate and implement fixes, all those fixes proved unfruitful. Such hacking and malicious activity can hurt and kill people as these communications between these devices and the body aren't, aren't encrypted and they're not protected with such technology to, to make that impossible. So if you have the Neuralink inside, what's to say that that's not going to be hacked too? And even if you control it to a point of cognition, what type of cognitive aspects can you make someone believe or feel or worse, uh, lethally inject into them. It will never cease to amaze me how the world's richest man somehow blew over $200 million on what I only see as performative engineering. <laughs>